We're moving to a world where we're really focusing on the user, the citizen, the patient, the student, the senior. Yeah, I think it's connecting citizens, regular people, if you will, to policy, to government, to conversations around decisions that really impact them on, on a day-to-day. I do not want to have input into my government's decisions um, to the degree that people seem to think I would. I want very smart people making decisions. Hello and welcome to Track Changes, Changer de Voix. I'm Susan Johnston. And I'm Dan Wanafu. We uh, teased you about this on Twitter and we're now pleased to release our full episode on the Clerks and Cabinet Secretary's Policy Innovation Symposium. We're also pleased to welcome our first ever guest producer and co-host, Kent Aitken. Kent was named the Public Policy Forum's Prime Ministers of Canada Fellow. So he's spending the year thinking, researching, talking, and writing about government in a digital age. The Public Policy Forum was a partner in putting on this year's event. Uh, So welcome, Kent, and thank you so much for your help on this episode. Thank you for having me. We were delighted to be in the room at the meeting of federal, provincial, and territorial heads of public services. These meetings have typically been limited to clerks and cabinet secretaries in order to create a safe space for them to talk about pressing issues that affect Canadians right across provincial and territorial lines. This year's symposium is called Open Policymaking in a Digital Age and brought together top Canadian public service leaders to share ideas and hear from leading experts in industry, academia, and government. We touched on open policy making in our first episode, and we were more than willing to return to it given its potential to transform how governments work and interact with citizens, stakeholders, and partners. And of course, the opportunity to hear from so many interesting people in the field. As well as having openness as its subject, there were features of the day that seemed to reflect a changing culture and mindset. The symposium had a hashtag, PCOPPF, so that interested people could hear some of the highlights of what public service leaders were hearing and discussing. This led to discussion among colleagues both in the room and across the country. But at least one observer asked why a meeting on open policymaking wasn't fully open. Fair game. Marshall McLuhan is famous for the insight captured by the medium is the message. So the medium hasn't shifted entirely. And there's still a place, a very important place, for confidential deliberation. But the medium is on the move. We were fortunate to be part of the increasing openness at this session. Track Changes Change de Voix sent a couple of our team armed with recorders to capture some of the discussion and hear from presenters on open policymaking, on what makes them excited about the innovation that's emerging, as well as what keeps them up at night. We're about to hear a lot about open policy making and citizen engagement. Right now, the most visible citizen engagement initiatives are broad calls for ideas from Canadians. Uh, Ontario has its Budget Talks website, and the Government of Canada has the Innovation Agenda. But I think it's worth noting before we dive in that citizen engagement can be everything from those broad internet-based consultations to getting feedback on draft regulations, uh, to town halls and roundtables, or months-long citizen panels. There are a lot of possible formats. And it'll be different at different stages of the policy cycle, whether government is just starting to identify a problem, is exploring solutions, or deciding on an ultimate course of action. And the bigger concept of open policymaking can include citizen engagement, but it also might just mean working with different partner organizations on policy, uh, or even government just being networked and open to new sources of input. This year's conference was co-chaired by Kim Henderson, British Columbia's Cabinet Secretary, as well as Michael Warnick, Clerk of the Privy Council for the Federal Government. We're going to go and hear from both of our co-chairs, starting with Ms. Henderson. I'm Kim Henderson. I am the Cabinet Secretary and Head of the Public Service for BC. We've been talking a lot about different dimensions of open policymaking, but I'm curious for you in your role, what does it mean? 
I think it means greater citizen involvement in the design of policy. So in British Columbia, we've had a number of different fits and starts to citizen engagement over the years, and we've learned a ton, and I'm hearing a lot of that reinforced in the sessions today. Uh, one is you can't rely on just online engagement. You have to try and figure out how you're going to include groups who wouldn't normally participate online. And I think one of the things I take away from the discussion this morning, public services often think about equity and inclusiveness when we're thinking about policy. So how do we do citizen engagement in a way that also reflects equity and inclusiveness? We also had a good discussion with Ms. Henderson about one aspect of the art of leading in an open-by-default environment we thought you would be interested in. Specifically, Ms. Henderson and other leaders and public servants at all levels are thinking about how to keep internal conversations frank and full while government transparency continues to increase. You see, as public servants, we can sometimes be cautious and risk-averse and... No, say it isn't so. I know, I, I know. And so we don't want public servants holding back on bold ideas or candid advice or bad news because they're concerned about the proverbial microscope or quote-unquote landing on the front page, right? So one challenge for senior leaders is to preserve that sense of safe space for open dialogue inside their public services. Right. It was good to hear that. It's an honest reflection of a real tension. It speaks to the complexity of governance and government work. It also speaks to the high standards public servants are held to in our roles as providers of advice to elected officials. You could support openness, engagement, and broad access to information as being vital to democracy and accountable government, and still worry about whether, as a result, internal deliberations are always as open as they need to be. There are no easy answers on this. There aren't. But thankfully, it's not a zero-sum game. We just have to keep working on these internal dynamics while we push the frontier on openness and transparency. Now we'll go to our own clerk, Michael Warnick, who provided some thoughts for us at the beginning of the conference. Um, this really, no pressure here, but I think this is the issue of our day, is how to bring governance to the digital age. People want their services 724, they want them online, they want them when they want them, and there are lots of parts of government which are moving slowly but steadily into that direction. The harder part is the lawmaking, the policy making, the regulatory functions of government, making the rules of the game for our society and economy, and how do we do that in a digital way? There's enormous opportunity. The one thing is we have to move beyond the gee whiz, that's cool kind of phase of this into how are we going to scale up. This is a bit like moving from the lab to, to the market. There are lots of, oh, that's cool, if we could just do more of that, examples around. We've been seeing them for, for years. It's how do we actually move them up and how do we make them compatible with the kind of governance that we want to have. Mr. Wernick also offered some reflections on how we as governments can get there. Here he is again. Shared accountability is hard. It's wonderful to talk about partnerships and we'll do things together and, and, and there's a lot of goodwill to do that. At the end of the day, people are accountable. And, and in, in a Westminster system, it's a minister who has to stand up in question period or, be, or take questions in a parliamentary committee with the, how could this happen, kind of thing. And uh, you can't say, well, you know, it's my partner. <laughs> my vendor. It just doesn't work. Ultimately, you are responsible uh, for, for what happened. You're responsible for the outcomes. You're responsible for the governance, the project management, and all that sort of thing. This is likely what Ms. Henderson drove at when mentioning the constraints of transparency. 
seen through this lens of ultimate responsibility in a risk-averse environment. So risk-reward, shared risk, shared return, these are actually hard things to do. And working our way through how to do that is actually the big challenge right now. So, you know, small little micro-projects, pilot projects, which is a phrase of all I've almost banned, uh, they work fine. But we have found once you want to go to bigger scale, you run into all kinds of issues about shared accountability and responsibility. The last thing we'll include here is Mr. Warnick's perspective from a government point of view. What does it mean to always keep the public interest at the forefront of the work? The challenge for us, work in the executive branch of government, serving elected governments, is taking all of that, turning it into actionable choices by the 30 women and men in in my cabinet, in my case, or the 338 women and men in in our legislature. That is a hard process, to turn things into actionable choices, and then, of course, to move on and implement them effectively. And to find, out of all that noise and competing interests, the public interest. Getting the longer view is hard in government, but we will always have to look for the public interest as the government sees it. And that is not the same as the private interest, and it's not always the same as the stakeholders who are participating in an online forum. They have legitimate views and interests to bring to bear, but somehow in a democracy, people have to sort out their view of public interest and then be held to account for it. And with these opening remarks from our co-chairs, let's see what else happened during the conference. Jennifer Hollett, head of news and government at Twitter Canada, spoke about the role of social media in open policymaking. We caught up with her to talk about this and also about what inspires her. I think it's connecting citizens, regular people, if you will, to policy, to government, to conversations around decisions that really impact them on on a day-to-day. I uh, meet so many people who are intimidated even by the word policy. Right? Even that word, I think, excludes a lot of people. But if we can come up with creative ways, uh, especially using digital, to invite more people into discussions that have an impact on their day-to-day lives, because uh, ultimately that's what you know government is, uh, whether that's uh, health or, or transit or education, that means policy. So I think it's opening it up in a way that's accessible and engaging. Social media is such a force in terms of opening conversations between governments and their citizens. When you look at your role with Twitter or in your own life at things about how open policy making is happening, are there things that inspire you the most? Yeah, I'm really inspired by the movements that are are born and come to life on Twitter. And when I say movement, that means a group of of people who decide to take action on an issue. And Twitter is a way to connect to people who might not know each other and to, through a hashtag, follow uh, an an issue. And sometimes what starts off as a hashtag, an example would be Idle No More or Black Lives Matter. Both were hashtags. Both were comments, and then they grew into movements because so many people connected to those conversations, and then people started meeting up in person and and organizing, and then that movement grew to many movements, and that is having an impact on policy, on conversations uh, that uh, we're having around race, around land, around treaties. So that, to me... When I think of you know, public policy in, in social media, it isn't a formal discussion or tweet on, here are my opinions on public policy or new legislation. 
very few people speak like that. Sure, in our circles, I have an MPA. I went to you know a school that had a bunch of policy wonks, and we'd have conversations like that. But I think that's pretty boring, you know, for the average person. So it's it's talking about uh, life and real issues like growing income inequality and how that connects to gender and race and class and all those policy issues. To have that conversation on a platform like Twitter, bring people together, to get them out in the streets, to have them meeting with politicians. This is all part of the discussion that we're having. We also asked Ms. Hollett about how the idea of or the objective of open policy making impacts her role. But now in my role as someone who's working closely with government, with politicians, it's figuring out how we can work together to reach as many Canadians as possible and give them an opportunity to have a conversation you know, around public policy issues. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of people are intimidated by government, intimidated by MPs, public servants, just they're not sure what to say or, or how to say it by joining people where they already are and engaging in a way uh, that feels authentic uh, is a start, right? It's about building trust and, and being part of the conversation. Traditionally, both news and government, it was very much one way, right? Here is a press release. Here is a press conference. And now, thanks to social media, it's a two-way, it's a three, four, five. I mean, it's a conversation that includes many voices. And we are stronger, especially with policy, the more diverse voices we have. Good reminders for us as public servants and for this podcast, really, that our role is in part to translate the legal and administrative and maybe bureaucratic wheels and cogs into something that Canadians can understand and want to provide insight and input on. And now, before we move on, Jennifer said one particularly interesting, critical string of words that we want to make sure you caught. By joining people where they already are. And this is so important. Too often governments try to create their own conversations rather than joining existing ones, launching these standalone online consultation platforms and Twitter chats and hashtags instead of engaging Canadians in existing fora, in person and online. You can do both, of course, but part of open policy making has to be about getting better at listening. Our citizens are already talking about the things that are important to them. So online in their communities, you know, around the kind of proverbial and maybe literal kitchen tables. So public servants have to get out there and, and pull up a chair. So one of the people we pulled up a chair with is Steve Orsini. My name is Steve Orsini. I'm the secretary of the cabinet, the head of the Ontario Public Service, and the clerk of executive council. So there's three functions. Secretary cabinet, I focus a lot about the quality of advice going to government. Head of the OPS, there's more than 63,000 public servants, so I need to pay attention to their issues and to engage staff on a whole variety of topics. And then clerk of the uh, executive council, I get to do a number of things, sign off cabinet minutes, swear in the lieutenant governor, cabinet minister, so it's the different types of functions for different types of situations. Mr. Orsini's definition of open policy making contained a nuance that really interested us, as he chose to focus not so much on a traditional take of open, per se, but rather how the change of focus focus impacts both policy making and program design. It's a fundamental rethink how we do policy, and it'll take time to fer- permeate the organization. But the way I look at it is we've, we operate in a world where the program areas, the policy shops, 
would develop policies based on their perspective of the world. And we're moving to a world where we're really focusing on the user, the citizen, the patient, the student, the senior, and looking at now designing policies from that person's perspective. It's a completely different approach. It sounds similar, but it's fundamentally different. We have so many programs for youth at risk, but yet we have youth in society, the vulnerable areas with high suicide rates. So we're not quite designing the system to best meet the needs of the individual. We designed it around the program delivery functions. That's a fundamental change. We're turning the whole system on its head. We've got to start with the user and then figure out what are the right programs to deal with their needs. And user-centered design is one tool for open policymaking. It brings the end user into the design process so that our programs are designed with a genuine understanding and sense of empathy for the population who will actually be impacted so that the program works out in the real world and so that they are easy for, for people to access and use versus being easy to administer on the back end. So this may seem like business as usual, but as Mr. Orsini pointed out, it's a really a fundamental rethink for a lot of governments, one that has become a hallmark of the way, for instance, the UK approaches citizen services and one that is increasingly uh, gaining traction in Canada. It's not that governments weren't thinking about citizens, but program design was often heavily influenced by the constraints and habits of the system. Design gives us a set of methods for tilting the focus back to the user. We also spoke with James Anderson, who brings a civil society and philanthropic perspective on government innovation. So my name is Jim Anderson, uh, and I lead the government innovation efforts at Bloomberg Philanthropies, which is a New York City-based foundation that does grant-making around the world. We asked him what excited him the most about the discussions. So the mere fact of bringing civil servant leadership together to talk about how to take these strategies to scale is incredibly exciting. What we see in government after government after government around the world are instances of excellence. Um, People are excited to test these tools and techniques, but we haven't seen a lot of governments really get them into the DNA of their organizations. I think that's what the Canadian Civil Service is wrestling with through this forum and, and, and that is incredibly exciting because someone needs to crack the nut and why not you guys? Mr. Anderson made a strong plea for deeper citizen engagement. The trust gap, the confidence gap is growing in country after country around the world. So I think there's an incredible urgency right now uh, for governments to better engage citizens, civil society, businesses, and others in policy making. That creates greater support for government policies. It creates different reference points for people in their relationship with their mayors, with their congresspeople, with their ministers. I think that that is an incredibly, it's so timely and it's so critical. So how do we move away from instances of excellence, islands of excellence, to embedding these strategies into the mainstream of work that we do. That's really uh, where I think this is going. Um, That seems to be the direction many governments are wanting to oar their boats. Um, It's hard, but that's definitely directionally where I think we're headed. 
To make this concrete, here's Mr. Anderson giving you an example of something that's happening elsewhere in the world. I think Prime Minister Modi in India is a real example of going from 25 to 80 overnight on the open policymaking front. Uh, we partnered with Prime Minister Modi around his urban development agenda. He wanted to uh, drive smart city uh, across uh, his country. He created a competition. That competition was open, energetic, transparent. It was the first time central government had used a competitive challenge to give away discretionary grant-making dollars. It was a real shift in the way that government operated. Namely, the government didn't tell cities what it meant for them to be smart. Instead, it asked them, what does smart mean to you? How do you want to get smart? What's your strategy for getting smarter? And that became the basis of an incredible program that really marked a big shift in the way that they distribute money um, and the way that the center engages with the states and the municipalities. Bloomberg worked with the government of India to launch a $7.5 billion urban development program to improve the quality of life in 109 of India's fastest-growing cities. At the center of the program was this program called India Smart Cities Challenge, in which cities could submit proposals to compete for central government funding. So along the way, Bloomberg hosted Ideas Camp, bringing together leaders from India's cities and global experts in ur urban innovation to help refine the proposals and spark ideas. The 20 winning proposals included projects to install LED streetlights, collect rainwater, use rooftops of public buildings to generate solar power, and revitalize heritage sites and riverbanks. Proposals were encouraged to, to involve citizen input and represent the needs of the city. So here's a good example of a government giving up control and prescriptiveness and using an open, competitive approach that lets those closest to the issues, here we absolutely mean citizens and cities, lead the way on solutions. When one organization or government opens up, it helps clear a path for others to follow and to enable new and different types of collaboration. Here's Nick Scott, the executive director of the New Brunswick Social Policy Research Network, which brings together various governments, academic institutions, and other organizations to support open policymaking. I would like to see the default setting of government be collaboration, be reaching out and, and working in that way. In a more specific way, I would like to see government identifying, articulating challenges that it wants to solve on the medium to long term and putting time and resources behind that um, to find solutions in a collaborative way. I'm seeking that, uh, that unicorn. I get, I get inspired when I meet with citizens who are, who are either private citizens or, or working for an NGO or nonprofit organization who work every day trying to make their communities better, trying to make our province better, trying to make our country better. And they are doing all kinds of complementary work, but in silos, working at the community level, oftentimes not collaborating with government, not collaborating with the academic sector. And I get inspired by their drive, and their passion, the work that they're doing. And I get inspired when we make connections, when we break down those silos. That's what really excites me because for some reason, whatever that reason is, somehow we lost this awareness um, that you know we all kind of care about the same things. 
Finally, Parker Mitchell spoke to us about why he sees the open elements of open policymaking as really less important. Mr. Mitchell is an entrepreneur and one of the founders of Engineers Without Borders. His contrasting perspective gave us some food for thought that we really wanted to share. So this is probably a controversial answer. I, I don't think open policymaking in and of itself is a goal. I think better policymaking is a goal. Um, and maybe it's open, maybe it's not. I, dis, I didn't feel a resonance with many of the comments that people were making today. I do not want to have input into my government's decisions um, to the degree that people seem to think I would. I want very smart people making decisions. Um, so I'm more interested in, do we have the right people in government who have the right understanding and background of the variety of trends that are shaping our world, and I will trust them to make decisions. I, I think I am less intelligent, less informed, and I have less time, and so I don't know, honestly, why my government would care about what I have to say. This is an interesting point. In government, we often talk about engaging citizens as though they're clamoring to provide input if we'd only give them the vehicle to do so. That's sometimes the case, but not always. And even when government doesn't directly invite citizens to participate, decisions are usually made on the basis of research and outreach to stakeholder groups and organizations that try to represent or characterize the interests of those individuals. Without input, we're operating in a vacuum, designing programs and services that may not meet the needs of the people who use them. And not everyone will want to contribute, but our job is to make it easy and accessible for those people to do, and, and really help those people understand why their part in the process matters. In hindsight, we should have argued with Mr. Mitchell. Absolutely. Well, I mean, as we've heard throughout this episode, the Open Policy Making Toolkit is much, much bigger than just direct consultation and engagement, however sophisticated that may be. So as Mr. Orsini noted, it's largely about putting the focus on the citizen and the user. Design thinking, behavioral insights, ethnography, they're just part of the process. The fact that some people might be busy or not want to be consulted directly or in a traditional sense does not get governments off the hook for solving policy challenges or improving services. Mr. Mitchell might not respond to an online consultation on Subject X. He might really not have an opinion, and that's fine. But he expects us to use all of the data and all of the information we have and to work with relevant experts and stakeholders to make things better. Exactly. Thinking beyond consultation is one way to address a point raised earlier by Kim Henderson, the clerk from BC, about equity and inclusiveness. Participation in engagement can be self-selecting, and not everyone's clear on how or why to participate. When we design open policymaking exercises, we should always be thinking about representativeness and how to triangulate between the different sources of input and information that we have. Mr. Mitchell actually emphasized how complicated this is. And he closed by recognizing the unique circumstances of policymakers and public service leaders and what they face when it comes to risk tolerance, which might be a good place to start pulling all of these threads together. It reminded me of how extraordinarily complex uh, the role of, of policymakers is, um, because there are any number of stakeholders, um, some of whom are going to strongly limit the choices that you can make. And I think some of whom, you know, you perceive that they strongly limit the choices you make. So someone said, we don't want to have an erosion of public trust because of a bad front page story. And I thought, well, is that really true? Is public trust, I mean, public trust is already pretty low. Is it going to get that much lower? Like, what if you had a big success? That actually might build public trust and there might be more upside than downside. So there might be some assumptions about what are some of the limits. But, uh, you know, I, I live in a world where it is okay to deliver sub 
subpar services initially in order to grow into um, extraordinary services. So Slack is a, is a very, very good platform now. The first probably 10 versions of Slack weren't that good as platforms. That's the advantage of the startup world is you're held to lower standards and that allows you to do the iterations to get the real feedback and grow. You know, I come from a world where it's it's easy to um, ramp things up because you're able to make those mistakes. And if you're in a world where everyone, so here's a great example. A friend of mine was actually one of the people who was the, you know, he was the chief designer for the healthcare.gov redesign. So he had, you know, he would approach it the way he approached his startup life in Silicon Valley. Um, you don't have to serve 100% of the people when you're doing a startup in Silicon Valley. You identify who are the 20% that we want as early adopters and you work through that. And so having to navigate, you know, not being able to A-B test, um, risking if, you know, a journalist visits a site one day and then visits it the next day and it's a slightly different site, they go, well, why was that different? Um, perfectly normal in the startup world, probably should be, I mean, I would argue it definitely should be perfectly normal in the ramp up of government service delivery, but it was a difficult thing and they had to convince politicians and they had politicians and who are willing to take the, the, the political flack for it and the cover for it to say, yes, you're adopting these practices. It's going to be faster and better if you do it this way and we'll take the hit of, I mean, we've already taken quite a few hits on it, so one more bad story isn't going to change things. Um, but being able to, uh, you know, how do you navigate those constraints? It's, it's, a, it's a much more, uh, sort of it's a minefield that you guys have to deal with. There you have it, provocative thoughts. So how do we challenge our own assumptions and flip the script when it comes to risk-reward calculations? How do we change the mentality that because we are government, programs and services need to run perfectly and on from day one? And the million-dollar question, how do we make sure that calls for taking more risks don't evaporate after a misstep? Because it's really how we react to those inevitable missteps that might matter the most. So can we contextualize them as inevitable features of experimentation and learning and building evidence about how to do government better? Or do we send a signal that any misstep is a dreaded, you know, proverbial career-limiting move, as we call it in government? We're open uh, to hearing your thoughts on this. You can tweet at us with the TCCDV hashtag. And yeah, like, let's have a conversation about it. Finally, Kent, can you bring us home? Now I get the very unfair position of being able to react to the entire day's conversation, and no one can argue back. Uh, and there are two themes that struck me. The first is the idea that open doesn't always mean digital, and open doesn't always mean always open. Both Kim Henderson and Parker Mitchell hit on those themes. The real question for governments is knowing when they really need outside voices, and when including the lived experiences of citizens or external expertise uh, will help us all get to better public decisions and then being able to execute the right processes to include those voices. And it's a bit of a paradox. You need the capacity for citizen engagement to do it well, but it's often the doing it that builds capacity. And the unfortunate thing in the meantime is that any time we get it wrong or choose open approaches in the wrong situation, it ends up being disengaging for the people who choose to participate, and they don't feel like they got value out of their time. So I think this is actually going to be a lot tougher to navigate than we might realize. I also want to touch on the role of social media and open policymaking. We think of social as a conversation of back and forth. But the OECD reported last year that virtually no government in the world, uh, except some elected officials, was using social media for genuine two-way engagement with citizens. As Jennifer Hollett highlighted, there's no doubting how much our public policy discourse can be shaped and influenced through social media, referring to some of the hashtags like Black Lives Matter and the Occupy movement. I'm not ready to say 
that our discourse is shaped and influenced by social media. I think it's, I think it is through. Uh, but as it stands, for this conversation, governments are mostly on the sidelines, uh, relegated to just listening and reacting. Thanks for that, Kent. We might have to bring you back sometime. Uh, before we go, though, this was a Clerks and Cabinet Secretary Symposium, so we'll leave you with a call to action from one of our Cabinet Secretaries on the role he thinks he and his counterparts need to play to make open policy making a more pervasive reality. Here's Steve Orsini from Ontario again. So there's a number of things I'd say. The first thing, you have to lead by example. So if the deputies don't see me walk in the talk, then it's hollow words. Two, you got to constantly talk about it. If it's not a priority for you in a very busy schedule, then they'll experience the same thing. And three, you got to create the space for it. And there's a variety of ways of creating that space. You, you create special groups, you, you uh, encourage uh, pilots and activities, but you got to create the space. But you have to walk the talk and that means every time I bring all the deputies together we meet once a week every Friday morning we talk about these issues and if I'm not talking about it enough then it's hard for me to hold them accountable if they're not talking about it enough but it, it does start with each of us in that room today has to make sure it's a priority or it's very difficult for others to do the same. You have to walk the talk. It's as good a place to end as any. We've covered a lot of ground during this episode. Many thanks to the conference organizers who allowed us to be in the room and to everyone who spoke with us. We're really grateful to have been given access to great minds who not only spend their time thinking about this stuff, but aren't afraid to come outside the firewall and share it with us all. The richness and diversity of voices and perspectives we heard were a helpful reminder that we're still in the relatively early days of open policymaking. It's absolutely the right direction in which to head, and it holds tremendous promise for improving how government solves problems and how we deliver services together with citizens, stakeholders, and partners. But it's also messy and complicated and full of unresolved tension. Okay, sounds like our podcast. Anyway, as always, please get in touch with us for whatever reason. We're quite curious to know what you thought about this episode. Let us know your own definition of open policy making. If you have any ideas for future episodes, please email us or maybe just say hi. Um, we'd love to hear from you. And like we said, use TCCDV, which stands for our own name as a hashtag. So track changes, change de bois to talk to us on Twitter or maybe rate us on iTunes. We'll be back soon with our next episode. Until then, you can find us on Twitter, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or on the PCO Innovation Hub website. So www.pco-bcp.gc.ca slash track changes. Or you can email us or tweet us. I'm Dan Monafu on Twitter as D-A-N-U-T-F-M, and my co-host is Susan Johnston at Engage Question. Thank you again to our guest producer and co-hosts, the always thought-provoking Kent Aitken. Oh, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to weigh in. Uh, this is what I'm going to be working on for the entire next year, so uh, any chance I get to trade thoughts with people, I welcome. Kent is at Kent D. Aitken on Twitter, and he also co-authors a blog at cpsrenewal.ca. Until next time. And here's Mark Matz with our theme song, Journey of the Mandarin.